Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Today's episode is all about our June book club pick, The Late Americans, the highly anticipated new novel by the incredible Brandon Taylor. The book is an exploration of sex, love, identity and politics. Set in Iowa City, we follow a circle of friends as they navigate their evolving identities whilst trying to decipher their desires and their past. Brandon Taylor is an American writer, editor and essayist. He's a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, where he was an Iowa Arts Fellow in fiction. Brandon is the author of three books. His first, the novel Real Life, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2020. It was also longlisted for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and named a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. His second book, the short story collection Filthy Animals, was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize and won the Story Prize. His third book, The Late Americans, has already been selected as a best book of 2023 by The Guardian, Irish Times and Harper's Bazaar, to name a few. And here to chat to us today, we have the literary icon himself. Brandon, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. <laughs> no, thank you. I think this has uh, been a massive highlight of our month, knowing that we had you coming up. So honestly, thank you so much for doing this. Very exciting. Awesome. <laughs> I'm also very excited to ask you my favorite question to start off, which is, what are you currently reading? Oh, what am I reading? I just finished, literally last night, just finished Emma Klein's new novel, The Guest. Um, what was it? Which is so, oh, it's so good. It's so upsetting and viscerally, like, uh, the, the, the main character, Alex, she's like in the Hamptons. And she's kind of grifting. So she's like kind of like scamming her way through. And it's just like watching somebody make a series like horrifying decisions <laughs> and like not knowing if she's gonna get away with it. I have never felt so much tension in my body. <laughs> Um, it's so good. It's so good. I yeah. It really took me for a loop last night. Yeah, it's amazing. Lydia. That sounds like a bit of you, Lyd. It is. Yeah, somebody I like... making a series of horrifying decisions. I mean, Listen, I mean, we've oh all been there. Gosh. I couldn't believe it. It was like I. It was yes. I loved every moment of it, even though there are moments where I had to like close the book and look away. I was so like <laughs> the secondhand anxiety. Um, no. <laughs> See, I get that with TV shows. Whenever I sit with my boyfriend and we're watching a series, he will just pause the TV if it's like an awkward moment. But I feel like with a book, I can't really do that. I feel like once it's open, like I'm like, oh, I'm trapped. <laughs> You're trapped forever. <laughs> yeah, there's literally no, I feel like at least with TV, you can like mute it or like yeah. look away. But with a book, like you literally have to, like there's only one go. way. Yeah, it's so... <laughs> I mean, that book, The Guest by Emma Klein is like, if you're looking for like a sort of taut, like summer thriller, it's a perfect book. It's perfect. It's, oh my gosh, I, I'm still, my, my, skin is, <laughs> my skin is still crawling. Um, yeah. I love that. I'm like, yeah, skin crawling. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a I'm bit of you. Yeah. It's a bit of me. Yes. <laughs> Have you ever had that, Brandon, when you've been writing, like your character's like ever made a decision that's just kind of come to you and you've been like, oh my God, has, has that ever happened when you're writing? I mean, I feel like, no, I mean, I, I love those moments when my character is about to make a choice that like is going to make 
their lives much harder because I'm like, oh yes, now I have something to write about. Um, <laughs> my skin normally only, I only get that in the negative sense when I'm having to write a character making like very boring, safe choices. <laughs> um, Cause like as the writer, that's not interesting to write. So yeah. yeah, I mean, or maybe it's a sign that I need to get my characters into more harrowing, awkward scrapes. Um, <laughs> Because nobody is doing it like Emma Klein in this novel. <laughs> I thought you just said I need to get more of my characters into heroin. And then I realized you said harrowing. And I was like, wow. Well, that would be an example of a harrowing um, <laughs> life circumstance. It's true. Um, that quote's going to be everywhere now. Just oh, 100%. The <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited, Brandon, to get into the the late Americans. It's a fantastic book, and I am just so excited to explore your back catalogue now after reading this. I read that your first novel, Real Life, was written in under five weeks. So I'm curious to know what the process has been like, with what the process was like for writing The Late Americans. Did you find it to be a, an easier experience, a harder experience? Or what was it like? Mm, a little bit of both. I think, you know, the first draft came relatively, well, it felt like it took a really, really long time compared to real life. But my friends are like, Brandon, six months is not a long time to write a book. Um, <laughs> no. So like, <laughs> so like the first draft, I started it in January, I think I finished January of 2019. And I think I finished the first draft in like June or July of 2019. So the first draft was done quite quickly, I guess, by other people's standards. But to me, I was like, wow, I really took my time on this one. <laughs> but then the, the process of like, turning that first draft into something publishable and good and done took a really, really long time. I think it well, for me, it felt like a long time it took basically until last year to get it so like three or so years of like revision and revision I quit writing for like a year in there to like take up photography because I thought it wasn't gonna work and so the the sort of turning this book from a first draft into a, a final draft took a long time a lot of sort of dark inner odysseys had to <laughs> take over oh, wow. <laughs> I can't believe we almost lost you to photography no yeah, yeah I I was I was done I was I was like I can't write I cannot write I need to like find another artistic outlet I guess because writing is not it for me I'm not meant to be a writer <laughs> so I I went out and I bought, bought a camera on my birthday and I didn't write another word until like I bought a camera on my birthday in June 2021 and I don't think I wrote another word of fiction until like June of 2022 or something like wow. that. Like, it was, I was oh my done. gosh. <laughs> I was done. Like that would have been riots if you stopped writing. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. <laughs> I just, I, just I felt like, you know, I really, for the first time in my life, I felt like I'd been abandoned by writing and, oh. and, but I, I'm ultimately grateful that I sort of took that very long walk around because I felt like my whole life I had written because it was a compulsion and I couldn't not write. And then mm. I felt like by the end of that long journey, suddenly I was writing because I got to choose it. Like I chose writing and now I was no longer at the, the mercy of the muse or whatever. I was no longer at the mercy of this compulsion. Writing became a thing that I got to choose. And I felt, I don't know, like it was like a, I felt more even keeled about the writing because I knew that I could survive not having it and that it was a thing that I did because I loved it, not because I couldn't help not doing it, you know? So it, you know, it worked out in the end, but yeah, it was real. 
my friend, my editor was like, okay, great, great. Oh, yeah, very, everybody was trying to be very supportive oh. um, as I was learning photography. They're like, what is going on? <laughs> well, at least we got you back. Yes. That's, all, that's all that matters. We got yes. you back. And you came yeah. back with an absolute banger. Like yeah. it wasn't like you've come back and it's it's like, oh, you should have stuck to photography. Well, that's a relief really like, here. I'm glad. Don't worry. I think you've made the right choice. But how do you decide? I don't know if there is a decision there, but obviously real life was your novel and Filthy Animals was a short story collection. How do you kind of decide whether something's going to be a novel or a short story collection? Normally I don't don't like for me at the time I'd, I'd written the stories and I considered myself a short story writer first and foremost and then I wrote real life a novel almost as an excuse to give myself so that people would take me seriously when I said that I was a short story writer because they're like oh no you're just a story writer because you haven't written a novel yet but like once you write the novel you'll become a real writer and you'll realize <laughs> that the novel is the grown-up form and I'm like no I am a short story writer and so I wrote real life mainly so that people would let me write stories in peace <laughs> And so then when I was, I went away to writing school and was writing short stories in this program. And I started this book as a series of like linked episodes. And I realized that even when I'm writing stories, I never write standalone stories. My stories are always in these constellations. And to me, like, I can't write a short story until I know the five other stories that will be in concert with that story or the the 10 or so other characters who will occupy the world alongside the, the, the character that comes to me. And so I feel like I don't think in stories, I think in in books I think in manuscript and I have like real bad manuscript brain where like everything is a manuscript <laughs> and so when it came to this book I wrote it as a series of like linked episodes and my editor was like yeah it's a novel and I was like well I don't know if I feel comfortable with that term like <laughs> to me novel is like Henry James Edith Wharton Jane Austen like <laughs> novel means something very particular <laughs> to me very I have very old-fashioned ideas and so when he's like turned into a novel I was like I have no no idea how to do that. <laughs> so a lot of the the sort of anxiety was like trying to get this book to feel like like a Jamesian novel and what I realized was like actually yes it's good to have these like old-fashioned ideas about what a novel is but that's not the only thing a novel is like there are lots of books that get called novels that are like much more diffuse narratively than the late Americans I feel and I'm like well those are novels like anything any there are no rules <laughs> anymore <laughs> and so I yeah and so I, I just had to find my form of mm. novel. I had to like find what a novel means in my idiom and to pursue that with a level of aesthetic rigor and try really hard to make sure that I was satisfied with it as a novel. And so often the, the, the sort of shorter answer is that when an idea comes to me, I'm almost always thinking of it as some form of manuscript. And maybe for me, those two forms are never quite as distinct as they are. They might be in other writers' hands. It definitely felt like you, you played with, with form and it did feel like, as you said, like more episodic than, than a lot of novels that I've read. And I really liked that you, you wrote it in that way. I also really appreciated the, the titles of each chapter because you know normally you just get like a one two three four but I liked all the titles I really appreciated those so thank yeah. you <laughs> well I mean it's it's also kind of a throwback right like 
like chapters used to have titles all they the did. time. Like, they, they did. They did. Yeah. Have... And and one of the big edits that my that my editor wanted to make was, you know, he's like, okay, Brandon, like, do we keep these titles or do we not keep these titles? You know that if you keep the titles for these individual episodes, it's gonna make people think it's a book of stories. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Like, go read, <laughs> go read Thackeray, go read Fielding, go read like they, yeah. those chapters have titles. Like, yes. <laughs> what are we doing? Um, like, that is a very old form. The the titled chapter. Yeah, I can do what I want. Like, whatever. I mean, go look at the sort of section dividers of Brideshead Revisited. Those have titles. I can. The reader will deal, but we'll give them a number just so that they have a sense of progress. <laughs> Well, I loved them and I appreciated them. And I'm sure many other people with, I know Lydia liked it as well. So. <laughs> I do indeed. Yeah, I and, we um, bring it back. We got to bring back the title chapters. Yes. yes! <laughs> I did want to talk to you about the way that you write about intimacy, which I think is, you, you do it so well. And in, in my opinion, it plays such a key role throughout this whole book. What made you want to explore intimacy with these characters and in its various forms? Yeah, I think, you know, when I was touring the first two books, I, I would I had this thing that I said, which is that I was raised by wolves. And like, I, I grew up in a family that didn't talk a lot about their feelings or about anything, really. And so I feel like I was always a step behind people when I would go to school or go out into the world, I felt like everybody understood how to relate to other people. They knew how to talk to other people. They knew what to say and what to do. They knew how to be in relationships. And I was just like, how do you guys all know how to do this? I have no idea. <laughs> and so I feel like when I'm when I'm writing, I'm approaching human relationships almost like an alien, because sometimes I feel like an alien. And I'm approaching relationships from a place of like like actual curiosity and not from the place of like assuming all the things that are assumed and so intimacy to me is like quite an important aspect of our lives and it has so many different forms and i feel like sometimes when i read other books or even news reports that the writers are writing with this sort of assumed understanding of how intimacy works that i don't have access to <laughs> um, and so in my own work i'm trying to preserve some of that strangeness of the encounter with intimacy and I'm trying to write about it in such a way that feels on the one hand like recognizable as intimacy and on the other hand that captures some of the strangeness of like what it is just to like be intimate with another person because like it is kind of like it's kind of wild that you can like say words and another person's like I understand like that is like <laughs> Or even like that you'd like put your hand on their shoulder in a comforting way and they feel comforted because it's like, how does that work? Like, <laughs> like, it's amazing to me. Like, it's it's like an alien technology. Um, and so when I'm writing, I'm just like trying to capture that strangeness of being intimate with another person because like I, I feel like I can't take it for granted because I, I don't know how it works. <laughs> That's such a refreshing take on it, though. It really yeah. is because I do think... Like you were saying, there is this assumption a lot of the time that we all think the same about it and that we all have the same experience with intimacy. And regardless of, you know, whether you're talking about uh, intimacy between friends or between lovers, it's not the same and it's not something that is one size fits all kind of situation mm. and it's so great to see a writer kind of personifying that feeling it's just mm. it's 
so refreshing it really is yeah and I think as you were just talking about it in the sense of you know people being able to speak and you know having intimate conversations but then there is also you know intimacy in terms of the body and in terms of sex and and I really loved the way that you explored the the body in this book obviously you did it through through sex and through dance and through manual labor and through like violence you know the way the body can communicate in various forms and I feel like as the reader we kind of look at the body in such a close way than we're used to I guess what kind of drew you to to exploring the body in that way yeah I think the body is one of the more neglected aspects of life in contemporary fiction these days I feel like we've and I you know like I feel like there are realist writers who descend like from from Virginia Woolf who are like so interior and all about sort of capturing the prismatic experience of consciousness on the page and I love very thinky books like that but I think I approach it from I think a much more maybe boring realist tradition which is I care about the physical artifacts of experience and to me the biggest conduit of those physical artifacts of experience is the body like it is through our corporeal form and I'm so interested in the ways that like the body both acts and is acted upon and I'm interested in also looking at what the body like what society says about certain bodies and what certain bodies are allowed to do and not to do and so the body to me is like this incredible like focal point of a lot of ideas and themes around how we live in the world today but also like it is how we live like it's literally like how we like walk and talk it tells you it's such a useful tool for characterization and I think a lot of it also comes from the fact that the first books I read were romance novels and so like bodies are really important in romance novels and I feel like my early literary education was like all about (laughs) body and like the bodily sense and and the senses and all that other stuff and so when I'm writing whenever I feel like I'm getting lost in the sauce so to speak I always bring it back to the body and I feel like the body is always there for me because I can always bring it back to a concrete observation or like a touch or a feel or a sight or like I've lost their body because I've been writing about Proust for too long in their headspace. How do I, <laughs> how do I bring it back? Like, where are they standing? Who are they talking to? I can mm. always bring it back with the body. So yeah, the body is always present, I think, in, in my work because it is mm. the thing I, maybe it's the thing I think about the most. I love that. And I, and I loved the way you, that you explored the body and the way that you drew the reader's eye so closely to it. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, but that's how it kind of, how it felt. And I feel like, especially in modern society, we kind of spend so much time trapped in our own heads and not kind of, as you said, thinking about the body, like we don't think about it. And I used to dance when I was younger and it's such a wonderful way of expression using the body. So I I loved that you did that, you know, through the dancers and through the other means as well in the book. The exploration of body and autonomy and choice, I thought was really well explored through Mm -hmm. Ivan's storyline and how he starts to use the the site that I think we would kind of culturally know as OnlyFans now. Mm. He starts to sort of create these cool sort of artistic videos and he expressed himself in that way and there's sort of a question of choice around that and 
other people's sort of reactions to that. And I just thought it was a really interesting sort of dialect that you opened up with the reader in terms of, you know, what is the reader's perception of that and sort of interrogating that and forcing the reader to interrogate their perceptions around that sort of thing. What inspired this uh, narrative in Ivan's story? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it because (laughs) there was this like guy in my graduate program who was like 6'4 and like very fit and like very beautiful and like he he was not having a lot of success with his writing and he was like gonna like move to a very expensive place and somebody said to him like well like you could all like you don't have to like work at a bakery like you would be so successful like on OnlyFans and he was just like oh I would never do that like why would I do that and I was like (laughs) why wouldn't you like your body is good like yeah it's actually not it's not like a totally absurd notion um and, and I was so struck by that. And <laughs> that I was so struck by that. And so I decided I would like dramatize the moment like between Ivan and Noah in the book. And Noah, who's also a dancer, is the one who says to him, Ivan is like, well, your body is good. Like, why don't you just like do OnlyFans? Like, I know a bunch of dancers who do it. Like, you should just like do it. Like, if you need money, like, here's a solution. <laughs> and like dramatizing that, that bit of conflict for Ivan, who's like had to make, he feels like he's already had to make all these concessions and changes in his life because he has this thing with his tendons and he can't dance the way that he had hoped to dance and now he's getting an MBA and he just like needs money and he's like but I don't want to do that right like that's that feels like a compromise but in doing it you're right like he does find like oh there is something like expressive in this like I can express myself through these videos like I can do this this thing that I'm somewhat ambivalent about but I can do it in such a way that I that like honors my own sense of agency and I can get money to like support my parents like this feels like a good idea and then when he tells his boyfriend about it the boyfriend then is like oh oh my God, like, I can't believe this. This is like horrible. (laughs) And of course the boyfriend is like, he's been rich his entire life. So he's never had to once think about it. And so then it falls to the friend of the boyfriend to be like, well, I mean, it's not not like totally outrageous. Like it seems fine. Like it's work, it's a job. And also agency and all these other things. I do feel like we're in this really interesting moment with respect to different kinds of like sex work and different kinds of like monetizing our bodies and a, a really fraught moment with respect to like the government being like, no, you can't monetize your body, but I'm going to monetize your body because capital is like, it's a very weird yes. <laughs> moment around bodies and autonomy. And when I wrote it initially, I wrote it in like 2019. And like, it's not like that was the dark ages, but it does feel <laughs> somehow like it was like a different time. Um, because I feel like something happened in between fall 2019 and like now. Now, like the public discourse around OnlyFans and sex work, like all that stuff has like changed so much in just like the last three years. I feel um, like the pandemic aged me about 10 years, like that right? whole... Like- <laughs> Like, I do feel like the Overton window kind of hurtled both forwards and backwards yeah. with respect to, yeah. to sex work somehow. Yes. And, and also bodily autonomy. I feel like the, mm. the U.S. government just like sent us back 60 oh, years yeah. here. Yeah. And so I, that felt really important to me, the book, that it would turn over questions of like agency and autonomy and that it would try to solve those questions like different ways. Like, there was a moment where Fatima, who had, one of the characters in the book, is like trying to think about like what she's going to do 
about an unplanned, unwanted pregnancy and all these other things. And she needs money for that. And also, I mean, what's also interesting is like, talk about a time capsule. Like I wrote that, I wrote that chapter back when you could still get an abortion in Iowa. And like, I I think the status of that law in Iowa is now not, it's not, it's it's not great. And so I'm like, I couldn't have written that chapter now. Like it would have, like that chapter couldn't be contemporary now. Like it would be a very different thing. And again, like that would only, but I feel like that only deepens theme of the book, which is like, how do you live in a world and express yourself in a way that's like true to you when the world is like actively like eroding your agency and convincing you that it's not doing that somehow. Yeah. (laughs) I also just want to say how much I loved Fatima. I thought she was a great character and just her responses to things like if anybody ever tries to like question her choices she just shuts them down and there's like a moment in the book and she's just like I cannot believe you've actually said that out of your fucking human mouth and I just (laughs) loved it so much (laughs) I just think she's such a good character and the dialogue that you get from her is just brilliant yeah I feel that you're not supposed to have favorites but I (laughs) I think she's, I think she gets some of the best lines in the book. Yes, she gets she some does. of the best. She is so, she was so delightful to write because she was such a great counterpoint to a lot of the, the bullshit of the boys. Or, yeah. or she's just like, grow up. Literally. <laughs> yeah. I think if you had to pick a favorite, it, it wouldn't be hard for me to pick one. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'll just leave that there. <laughs> but the the book itself it contains so much about like one of the concepts that I find absolutely fascinating which is like found family or chosen family mm. as some people like to call it you explore it so well did you consciously want to write about that topic or was it just something that happened when you threw these people together and it was like oh they are like this kind of unit now you know it really it didn't occur to me that I was doing that until my UK editor actually Jacob Morosevich at Cape was like <laughs> was like I love how it's also about found family there are not enough narratives about found family and I'm like yeah it kind of is about that look like, they are a found family and I realized that like you know in my own life the people who I call every day who I think who I put down as my emergency contact who like the people who I think of as my family are these friends I've made over the last decade and a half of like being an out queer person in the world and it's become such a fundamental aspect of like my life and my worldview that I don't even think about it as like (laughs) (laughs) non-normative like I just like (laughs) it doesn't even occur to me I've also noticed that like as I've been writing the focus of my books has like shifted from the relation between like characters and their family like my first novel was very much about like character and like he's got a past and like the past sort of haunts him and it's like there's a whole chapter about his family and then the second book the book of stories like again it was very much like there are all these stories in there about families and like the weirdness of family and I feel like as I've written and as I've like lived in the world on my own terms and as like I feel like my fiction has become more about people with agency that the focus has like shifted from family and has shifted to these collectives of relationships that you form with these people who become quite close to you and I think graduate school is a place where you often find people who become your family and so that theme that thing like didn't 
it wasn't the thing that I was like doing. It was only a thing that was obvious to me after it had been pointed out to me. And then I was like, oh yeah, you can see this very clear progression of like the family kind of recedes from my fiction as you go through. And of course, like this book has things about families in it as well. But I think, yeah, the, the sort of main dramatic focus and intensity of the work has like left the family and has like come to these found family structures. Um, and I think that just reflects <laughs> my own life. <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah, all my characters are kind of orphans and they're kind of displaced to places they don't understand. <laughs> I think it's Stafford that says it later on in the book and there's like some from which character is somebody's telling an anecdote about a fight that had occurred at school when they were younger mm. and I think it's Stafford that says something like they're just like walking damage from their parents <laughs> and I think like <laughs> which is a great line <laughs> but I also think yeah like you said you know they they all seem to have all of these characters are very layered and complex and they all seem to be this way because of their relationship with their parents and their found family kind of gives them sort of a reprieve from that. And I think found family is definitely like such a huge topic in the queer community, you know, that's the people that they feel safe around and they feel, yeah, like you said, like it's it's their people, it's the people that are like fundamental to them when they can't kind of trust their family or rely on their families really really loved the way you explored that and I love a found family narrative yeah I mean I didn't realize that that I didn't realize I was doing that until I had done it and I was like oh yeah I guess that kind of makes sense that is sort of my life wow who knew You're just re- writing your your own experiences, really, aren't you? So it's, Listen, uh, it, it's authentic. It's authentic. authentic. I, I myself am from a found family yeah. and very much understand that we need more of these stories. And I think whether or not your intention was to write something that was going to chime with people like myself, you definitely did. Mm-hmm. It is so nice to see this kind of and yeah, it's not it's not simple. It's not easy <laughs> you know no. and there are flaws to it but my gosh like sometimes it's just like oh there's me on a page <laughs> but, you know that makes me so happy and I think this goes back to not me not knowing what the scripts are I think sometimes people complain about my work and they say like oh it's so bleak or they say like oh like these characters like where where are their brothers and sisters and their fathers and their mothers and I'm just like I don't I wouldn't know how to write that like I don't I don't know what parents say to their children like I I know what my parents said to me and it was I'm not gonna replicate it like why would I I do that and so I'm just like always trying to write about things that I things that I don't understand in a way that makes sense to me and so I I feel like I can't solve the conundrum of human relation by trying to use tools that (laughs) don't belong to me wouldn't make any sense. I also really wanted to talk about, I loved the way that you explored in terms of family and in terms of their relationships and friendships, the whole kind of notions of of class and wealth and, and nepotism. And I think, you know, there are some really funny back and forths in the book. And I'm just thinking about the fact that our listeners are probably rolling their eyes at the fact that we're bringing up class again, because we're... <laughs> <laughs> we're we're two working class girls we're gonna bring up class every possible opportunity and I it just made there were some moments in the book that just made me laugh out loud where you know a working class per- person was speaking to their like maybe more middle class or rich friend and the friend was being like oh here we go you you whining on about being working class again I was like go away Brandon get out of my head <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but I, yeah, I love the way that you explored those things and how those things have like an impact and a strain on, on relationships and also the way that they impact art and who gets to make art. And I'm going to be really cringe and read your own book back to you because there's a quote that I was like, yes, yes, and yes. Got so many folded down pages that it's making me confused. Oh, what an honor. Well, I love it. <laughs> Lydia hates people dog in their books, but awesome. I can't help myself. I'm just saying, get, it's so get I know tabs, what pages get, I loved the most. Tabs. <laughs> Don't want tabs. Do, they, do the, they do the same job. They look prettier and no there's nothing folded don't want a tab <laughs> I like my folded pages anyway so there I mean I don't know what exactly the conversation is going on about here but they're talking about class and wealth again they've somehow found themselves talking about it and I think it's Eve that says in response to the discussion that they're having I think it's hard that's why people in the arts only come from like wealthy families you know because it's hard to be as dedicated as you need to be to the art itself while also like supporting yourself and I was just like, yes, because we're, me and Lydia are both working class actors and it's just like how to communicate how hard it is that I am working like three jobs and also trying to make art. But then there's people that are from a really wealthy background and they just have the time and the means to to create this stuff. And then they sometimes have the audacity to, to look down on, <laughs> to look down on people and be like, oh, you're not dedicating as much time as you should be. <laughs> yeah. And I felt like yeah. you really communicated that in the book. <laughs> And I've been trying to articulate it, but I don't need to anymore because you did it for me. So yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's Fatima's whole thing is that she, you know, she, yeah. Fatima is like, you know, she's working class. She grew up in a working class family. She's danced her whole life and she's in this program. And like, ostensibly they're all equals. Like they're all like, they got into the same program. They should all be equals. But of course <laughs> they are not because Fatima like has to work to support herself yeah. while her classmates, some of her classmates don't. Well, what's curious to me is that her classmates are like oh you're not dedicating as much time to dance as to work and then she's like that is false I am doing my very best <laughs> then and then they resent her because they they are insecure and they're projecting onto her like a sense of like immense piety like oh she thinks she's so much better than us because she works for it right and it's like first of all like that <laughs> that girl is like working a full-time job and Literally. going to grad school for dance. And she's she doesn't have time to feel pious at you. She's not thinking about you. And I, I mean, I, I do think like the other aspect to this is, you know, I think it's not that people from means don't work hard. And like very often, sometimes those people are working jobs as well. But I think what mm -hmm. a lot of people don't understand is like, the thing is when push comes to shove, if you come from means and you have access to means, you aren't feeling the existential threat of am I going to be able to pay my rent this month because it's true like you might be working a job and you might be doing pursuing your art but there's a difference between a person who can call their parents and say oh I'm like 800 pounds short on rent this month and a person who can't right so those mm -hmm. deficits are not the same no. and there is a cumulative effect of working every day and not knowing knowing like if I can't get the money together I'm not going to eat this month versus a person who can call someone and get something X, Y, and Z. And so it's not even about who's working a job and who's not working a job. It's literally like, do you have a person in your phone that you can call 
who will cover your rent if you can't make mm-hmm. it. And like that to me is like the real distinction between like yeah. being working class and like having access to means. Yes. And people like completely overlook the, like what that anxiety does to you. Like it, mm-hmm. it it's sometimes paralyzing. And one of my favorite writers is the writer Mavis Gallant. And she has this story called When We Were Nearly Young. And it's about a bunch of like people in Spain after Franco. And like one of them doesn't have any money. They all are broke, but like one of them is like a slightly different variety of broke and that she's waiting <laughs> for money to come from some stories that she sold while the rest of them just like don't have money. And it comes to a head where one of the, the guys says, you know what the difference between us is like for you, money is always going to come, but for us, nothing, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> um, but the other great line that's in that story is when the main the narrator says poverty is not a goad it's a paralysis and i think that sometimes people like to aestheticize the struggle thinking like it'll give you something to write about when in fact when you're broke you don't have time to think all you're doing is worrying about how you're broke like, literally like, it, like it's not creative fuel like you no. know <laughs> It's the way that people romanticize the whole struggling artist Mm -hmm. concept. I hate it so much because it's like anybody that actually doesn't have money doesn't want to romanticize that. We don't want to be struggling. We don't want to be just trying to survive. Like we want to just focus on our our shit. And it's like that idea of like the authentic, like, and that's the thing that I think a lot of sort of bourgeois people who are also creators, they do, they, they think like, oh, you think you're more authentic than, than me because you struggled and like your struggle. It's like, no, I'm not thinking about that at all. I'm just thinking about how I don't have any money in my bank account. Like I'm not thinking about that at all. <laughs> and just to tell another sort of brief anecdote about this, when I went to the Ira Writers Workshop and this is before I had sold my book and I had I had written all these freelance pieces, I all my stipend was used up to move. I had no money in my bank account, literally no money in my bank account. And I could not write because all I could think about was like, how am I going to eat? I've like moved to this place. I have no money. I have nothing. And it was the writer, Curtis Sittenfeld, actually. She DM'd me and she said that she had bought me like a gift card to a restaurant in town in Iowa City. And then I could go there and have a meal. And that, you know, she didn't do it. She she told me never to tell anyone, but I'm telling people now. But like, <laughs> she bought me that she bought me some meals in Iowa City. And it was her who really got me through that first rough patch and it was really only when like I got my first advance check that I felt like I could breathe enough to like actually start writing again because before that everything was consumed (laughs) with am I going to be able to pay my rent am I going to be able to pay my health insurance like I was just so consumed with worrying about money and it was really only like Curtis's kindness that like helped me bridge that first difficult period and then later my advance check that like let me even start creating and so when people aestheticize the struggle I'm like yeah that's because you can call your parents (laughs) literally (laughs) like I don't have parents to call (laughs) like it's and it's only like the kindness of strangers that like and another great internet person Nicole Cliff like she she sent me money to buy food and if not for that I I, I wasn't writing when I was like starving <laughs> like no. I, I was not no. writing at all like it's impossible like yeah your your whole your brain isn't working it's not it's not got all any fuel your, <laughs> all your faculties are channeled into like trying to survive your Five, circumstance 
differences. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, when I was writing this book, I was like, yeah, let's talk about it. (laughs) Let's talk about the weird projection that happens when you are trying, just trying to support yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, I think I just watched Lydia fall more in love with Curtis Sittenfeld in real time. I think. Don't, don't, because she's uh, honestly, don't even. Yeah, she's can't because if she listens, oh my gosh. No, she's really, she's one of the most generous, brilliant people in the world. And, you know, and this is before I even was any, I was nobody and had published like two things maybe. And I was just a reader and an admirer of hers. And she just, you know, literally was like, oh, a hungry young writer. I remember what that's like. I'm going to like step up and do something kind for that person, expecting nothing. And she said, if you tell anyone about this ever, I will deny that it happened. But like... (laughs) I remember I and so for a whole week I had meals you know and it's incredible what an incredible thing right honestly and, yeah um and it's like mm. yeah that's what artists need they need <laughs> that's why community also very important because not all of us yeah. have family we can call up and be like hey can you precisely exactly and I feel like it's such a like when when you have been poor or when you know what it's like to be poor or when you know what it's like to be, like you were saying, a hungry, starving writer, you understand the concept of money and of helping and how much a meal can help someone in a, a completely different way, you know, because the smallest thing can make the biggest difference when somebody is struggling. And I think it's just so, so brilliant that, you know, you had that help. And I think that, you know, it's these small acts of kindness, aren't they? And it can make a massive difference to your life. They really can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, showing up for other people. And I feel like that's another thing that I'm always so struck by is showing up for people and like being a moral agent in the world and like trying to be like in an ethical relation to the people who, you know, you're in community with and even people you're not in community with. And I think a lot of people, (laughs) I don't know, like, I grew up very Baptist and I feel like I internalized a very different moral code than like a lot of other people. And I'm like, did we read the same Bible? Like, wasn't there a whole thing in there about like helping people and like loving people? I mean, like I am very atheist, gave that up really quickly, but I feel like that early moral instruction to care about other people and to think of others and to try to help others. I feel like that was the, the sort of core moral assumption I was raised with. And I feel like going out into the broader world, you realize that like, no, not everybody. Yes. Yeah, a couple of people read between the lines and saw nothing but white space. Yeah, it's so true. Speaking of morals and ethics, etc., there is a character that lacks those things. No, there is a character that I really wanted to chat to you about, and that is Bert. I mm. found Bert a very uh, intriguing character. And, you know, when we first meet him, we sort of perceive him as, I've got no other better word than, you know, we perceive him as like a bad character and then we we meet him later on and it it kind of when we meet him later on it sort of shines a different light on him and it's not necessarily that the badness is sort of taken away it's just that we we sort of see him as a as a more rounded character and we kind of understand him a little better and I was just really curious where the inspiration came from for Bert yeah you know I think (laughs) Bert is a fascinating character Mm. and 
initially in the first draft of the book, he just appeared in Noah's section and that was the only place he really appeared. And as I was expanding Seamus's early chapter, I, I saw a really great opportunity to kind of like bring him in earlier and have him wreak more chaos. And Bert, I think I wanted to write about a certain kind of queer man or would identify as exclusively like a gay man who exists in America and in the world, you know, the sort of people who watched many of their friends, lovers, loved ones die of AIDS and who still like live and walk among us. And I feel like I hadn't seen a lot of, I don't know, I, I feel like I hadn't seen a lot of like representation of like the particular dynamics that like unfold between like a young gay man who's like in his like mid-20s and like an older gay man because like that mm-hmm. is like often a very fraught generational divide <laughs> and for example around words like queer like I feel like my generation and younger I feel like I didn't grow up with queer as a slur and like they did and so when it yeah. comes to self-ID it becomes quite fraught it's like don't say that word that word's a slur it was used to like harm me and my friends and it's like well that is true like that is a true thing but like I also have my own experience growing up in like the 90s and the 2000s in a particular part of America where like that wasn't the case and so I wanted to capture some of that dynamic I also wanted to write about the kinds of like harm that unfold not necessarily between like intergenerational relationships but just like in gay male relationships and Bert was just like a useful tool for that theme as well it just so happened that he was also there to help me write about intergenerational queer relationships but it also felt important that he wasn't just like this guy who was going around assaulting Iowa City's like young queer men that like he's got his own stuff going on and that stuff isn't an excuse for the things that he does and says but it is I think complicating and if you're going to live in the world as like a moral actor you have to be willing to sort of see all the nuances and complications of other people even if you come to the same conclusion about them which is like don't burn people (laughs) like don't don't abuse people that's bad Mm. and like you can hold that view but also you have to let in all those sort of nuances and like acknowledge like that as a character whose experience has been shaped by tremendous loss, tremendous grief, et cetera, et cetera, who also has like some unprocessed internalized homophobia causing him to lash out. And I don't know, like, but I love writing about characters like that who have a lot going on and like just peeling the layers back and realizing like, oh, that's why he's, maybe that's why he's doing that. And then at the end of the day, coming to the same conclusion, like, yeah, that's why he's doing that, but also he should still not be doing that. (laughs) (laughs) It's characters like that that convince me that I'm like, I feel like I'm like some kind of psychoanalyst and I'm like, you know, taking it really seriously, like making notes. Okay, so... <laughs> like I fully think that and you know he like you said you know I still came to the same conclusion that no he shouldn't have been doing any of that but I was like you know what does living with that amount of shame and not coming out to the people you loved you know what does that do to a person over you know their their lifetime and like you said internalizing all that homophobia and and having that rage and the loss and the grief having to sit with that for a lifetime like how does that fester and what does that do and then you've got the the younger generation and it's is it Seamus and Noah yeah Noah and obviously they're younger and they're from a fairly more open generation and more open-minded generation and I think he he sees that and resents that and you know he kind of rejects it in a sense and that's why he treats them the way that he does and I just I thought he was such an interesting character to unpack and I 
I need to chill out because I could write an essay on Bert's character. Well, I, hope you, I mean, I hope you do one day. I mean, I do find him so, I do find him like very interesting and like maybe, maybe there needs to be like a whole book about Bert, but like he is such an interesting, you know, he's like got a, and also like the thing with Seamus is like Seamus is like, oh, I need to like treat him well because, you know, he's like a townie and like I'm a grad student. So I'm in this like hierarchy. And then Seamus is like, no, this guy's rich. Like I actually, like, what, like, what? What is the actual sort of Marxist permutation of our relationship? What is going on? And I find Bert interesting because I think he disrupts and troubles certain pieties we have around that generation of of gay men. This tendency, I think, to sometimes like eulogize and do like a hagiography to these people. And like they went through unspeakable horrors, but also like they are people and some of them are not nice. And and I feel like with Bert, I was trying, to, I think more than anything is I was trying to explore generational tensions within the queer community, but also first and foremost, these two individuals, how do they interact together? And I feel like that's the thing that happens with Bert is that people kind of want to read him as like a flat symbol, but actually he's like much more complicated and much yeah. weirder than than any symbol <laughs> yeah. could ever be <laughs> like when he's like when he like appears at the house party and it's like why is he here like what is going on <laughs> He just like appears in the window behind Seamus. Like, like why? It's like a horror. Like, <laughs> and then like later, he's just, like hanging out in bed with Noah. It's like, why is this man in this house? What is going on? And, um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I tried to write first and foremost individuals. And then I tried to use those individuals to like explore these juicy questions about generational queer tensions. Cause like, that's another thing that I hadn't really seen in fiction is like the, the strangeness of like hooking up with like a 45 year old white man when you yourself is, are like a young queer man of, of color. And you're just like, what is the things that they say to you on dating apps <laughs> is yeah. why for a long time, I just like would not message gay men over over 40 I just because like they would often do like a we're not going to get into it here but like there, there, there are things said I'm ready. To, things said to me by 40 over 40 gay white men on dating apps that I just cannot unsee oh, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine I can imagine not all, I not, want to all imagine. No. not all of them but like there were so, there's like a very particular dynamic and I think the queer community between the over 40 white gay men and like the younger queer men of color like that is very much a dynamic that goes on and very <laughs> different permutations some beautiful and wonderful and some curiously strange basically you've got a lot of books to write about this you know you've got yeah. you've got years of material I mean I I did start a novel over this over the holidays about it's sort of a queer retelling of the ambassadors that's sort of about that yeah oh well that sounds very exciting and is literally the question I was gonna ask you next which is do you have anything in the pipeline have you got any plans <laughs> yeah I know yeah. this book has literally not even come out yet but I'm like come on we need no. I don't want you so, so this book was written the late americans was part of a two-book deal the second book on that contract is called group show and it's about an art museum in madison wisconsin and i was literally working on it before i clicked into this zoom um so that's immediately next um yes. so it'll be my fourth book but 
books like five through eight are already written and ready to go like those are done um I'm just sort of in the immediate term there's going to be this novel group show which is about an art museum and then I'm working on a few like tv adaptations although not during the strike because we support our striking yes, we do. writers yes, we um and so yeah I, I finished last year an adaptation of my first novel for film and tv stop um, yes it's all done and we're we were going out to directors but we're not we're pausing all of that because we support striking writers yeah. um and yeah so there's film and tv stuff in development um so a lot of a lot of things coming down the, so the exciting oh my goodness I'm <laughs> i am really excited i am especially excited for as lydia knows as the listeners know i love an adaptation and I'm still trying to convince Lydia to give me an adaptation series on the podcast. Maybe now you've mentioned you're bringing out one that might sway her. I, I don't like know. adaptations. I mean, adaptations are really interesting. And like, I love them when they're good. I also love them when they're bad. Something that I hope someone writes about or like does a thing about, which is like not enough people acknowledge that the second Bridget Jones movie is an adaptation of Persuasion. And I think it's like one of the best <laughs> adaptations of Persuasion. And I, but I love an adaptation. Love yes. it, love it. 10 out of 10. Go on then, I'll let you I do feel it. You. <laughs> now, what we have to ask is if you have any recommendations for us to finish on. It can be Re- books, TV, film, mm. podcasts, anything. Oh, well, I think everybody should read the Emma Klein because yes. it's so tense. It's yes. so tense. It's um, on my list. <laughs> I am vibrating. I Like, I'm still vibrating. Um, <laughs> and I think if you read the Emma Klein, a perfect book to come down from it with is Curtis and Phil's romantic comedy. It's like, it's a perfect one-two punch for the summer. Like, it's so good. It's so, uh, man, I've read some really good books lately and those two, I think, are two of the best. Absolutely. I have literally just finished romantic comedy and absolutely just fell in love. And so, yeah, I second that recommendation wholeheartedly. You know, normally when I'm reading a book, if it has long emails in it, I just like can't, can't be bothered, not gonna, no. But the emails in romantic comedy, I was so riveted. I was like, there's a whole section of that book that is just emails. And I'm like, and then what happened? And then, oh my God, can you believe, like there's one in there that I had to like close the book and like walk away. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe she put yes. that in an email. I can't believe this. Oh my God. Why would she do that? Oh my God. Oh my God. How do we unsend the email? It's a great novel. I love that novel. And Emma Klein's novel is like a perfect counterpoint. They're both vexing, but in different delightful ways. I love them both. Oh, Amazing. I love that. And uh, romantic comedy is currently sat on my bedside table. So I, you've just made me even more excited to read it now. It's a... <laughs> And it's a brisk read. It goes so fast. Yeah. Great. 10 out of 10. Those are my two recs. Those are my two recs. Yes. I love it. Brandon, it has been an absolute joy speaking to you today. And it has been an absolute joy being able to read your book before it comes out. So thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was such a thrill. Yay. Listeners, you can order your copy of The Late Americans. Um, I will pop a link in the show notes. It is published by Jonathan Cape. It's an imprint of vintage. It's out on the 22nd of June. And please tag us in all of your 
your reviews or when you get a copy we'd love to see it and I'm sure Brandon would too Brandon is there anywhere that our listeners can find you on socials I'm I'm on Twitter and Instagram (laughs) yes amazing hard to miss (laughs) yes you've got like 90k followers or something crazy on Twitter haven't you it's too many it's man of the people man (laughs) of the people (laughs) thank you so much for listening uh listeners if you enjoyed this episode please don't forget to rate review and subscribe as it helps us to reach more listeners i will pop a link to all of brandon's socials in the show notes and you can follow us at a pair of bookends pod on instagram and at a pair of bookends on twitter and tiktok and aside from that thank you brandon we are obsessed with you if that wasn't already clear 10 out of 10 for the late Americans. Oh, thanks and, a bunch, guys. And goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>